speak to us through his word. And that as his word is preached, it's living and active and it pierces our hearts and, and it, it refreshes and renews our minds. And so this morning we're looking forward to a guest speaker who is not exactly a guest, although he is no longer here. Um, I consider him a dear friend and uh, kind of an extended, he says he's an adjunct professor at many seminaries, so I'm going to call you an adjunct member, if that's okay. Whether or not you're okay with that, I'm going to kind of claim that. And so uh, I'll call Andy an adjunct member here. Um, Andy Nacelli is a professor of New Testament at Bethlehem Seminary, and he's also an adjunct professor so, so many different places. I don't even know how many seminaries you're an adjunct at. Not that many, five, ten, something like that, yeah. Exactly. So I'm, I'm claiming him. I think, I hope I'm the first and only church to claim you as an adjunct member. Um, so, so I'll keep claiming that. Um, we love Andy and Jenny and their family, and they are a gift to the body of Christ. Andy is equipping so many men to go out and pastor churches, and, and he's instilling a passion for God. You see, academics for him is not just about mere intellectual study. It's about exaltation. It's about exalting and glorifying God as we study his word, and then we respond to him with our whole lives. And so he's training men to do that. And so I am really excited he's there, even though I wish he was here. I'm really excited he's there because he gets to send other men out um, into the field to, to go and plant churches and to proclaim the gospel and to exalt God. So would you welcome Andy Nacelli this morning, please? Andy, would you come? Thank you, brother. Love you. Well, it's good. Whoa, that was quite the start to the... Okay. It was, it's good to be back with you. All right, we're good. Um, this is part two of two. And you might be thinking, what was part one? May 26, 2013. How many of you are here? Oh, wow. All right. So do you happen to kind of remember what it was, was about? What was it about, Roger? That's it. Romans 14. Wow. Good memory. So, so Romans 14 and 15 was about two years ago. So let me take... Uh, 90 seconds or so to review that because we're going to build on that this morning. All right, so here's, here's what that sermon was about. It was, I titled it, How to Disagree with Other Christians About Disputable Matters. And we read Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. So this bleeding into the first part of chapter 15. And we looked at 12 principles about how to disagree with other Christians on disputable matters. So let me just read those 12 principles to you really quickly. Number one, welcome those who disagree with you. Number two, those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. Number three, those whose conscience restricts them must not be judgmental toward those who have freedom. Number four, Each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Number five, assume that others are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. Number six, do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. Number seven, your freedom to eat meat is correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weak brother. Number eight, Disagreements about eating and drinking are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Number nine, if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you are strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. Number 10, a person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Number 11, we must follow the example of Christ who put others first. And number seven, We bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Is ringing a bell now? Remember this sermon? Okay. So remember in that sermon I defined the word conscience this way. The conscience is your consciousness, your awareness, your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. So your conscience could actually be functioning incorrectly. You might think something is wrong when it's not really wrong. And you might think that something is okay when it's not okay. So we have to calibrate our conscience with the word of God to make sure our conscience is functioning accurately. Just like if you step on a scale, it might say 
that you weigh five pounds more or less than you really do. It's the problems with the scale. Okay, you've got to fix the scale. So your conscience can, can function accurately or inaccurately on any given issue. So you want to calibrate our conscience the, with the Word of God. So that's, I think, how we, we should disagree with students about disputable matters, especially with people in your own culture. Think especially, not always, but especially with people in your own church context. So now what I'd like to do is build on that by answering this question. How should you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences disagree? How should you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences disagree? Um, And you might be thinking, why should we need to think about this? I think it'll become clear as we go along. I'm not going to Give all, show all my cards yet, but just trust me, it matters. And I'm going to connect it by showing that the way you, you uh, relate with people in your own church setting on these sorts of issues is a microcosm of the bigger issue. All right? So that's where we're going. And I'm going to be leaning quite a bit on a friend of mine named J.D. Crowley. I mentioned him two years ago. J.D. Crowley and I, I told you about a book two years ago we were working on, On the Conscience. It's done. It should be coming out in April with Crossway. And this sermon is one of the chapters in that book. I'm just tweaking it. Okay? So that's J.D. Crowley. should come out. The title is going to be Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. So here we go. If conscience issues are so complex in your own culture, like in your own church setting, can you just imagine how complicated things get when you cross cultures? Yet every year, Church planters start churches on the other side of town and churches send missionaries to the other side of the world when those people sometimes have given very little thought at all to how their own conscience works, let alone how the conscience of people in other cultures is working. And when that happens, it can cause all sorts of of issues. And it it might not even cross their minds that, for example, their own standard of privacy or private property rights, or hygiene, or whatever, it may be quite different in the location where they're going to be ministering. So this morning, I'm going to do something a little different. Normally, I'd like to start by opening the Bible and, and then explaining and applying it. What I'm going to do this time is explain, or, or kind of set up a problem. So give me a few minutes here to set a problem up, and then go to the Bible to show the solution. So, so let me just start with the problem. So here it is. I'm going to start with the story. My friend J.D. Crowley is a missionary in Cambodia, and uh, he's been there quite a while. He's a generation ahead of me, so he has lots of stories. And his, when he was first in Cambodia, he planted a mango tree, and it t- takes about four years for the fruit to come. And the first year that fruit was coming, he was so excited to see this mango tree. It had three mangoes on it, and he was so pumped about eating these mangoes. And one of his friends came one day to do concrete work. Friend's a Cambodian native. And as he's doing his concrete work, his friend plucked and ate all three mangoes <laughs> without permission. So J.D.'s thinking, well, what would you be thinking? <laughs> You'd be thinking, I heard the word steal. Do you hear the verb steal over here? Why did you steal my mangoes? Did you kind of resonate with that? That's what you'd be thinking? Okay. In Cambodia... He, the, the Cambodian was offended that J.D. was being stingy. They were equally offended. They both thought the other person had sinned. See, in that culture, eating someone else's food, like if you are going through their property and just plucking some off of a tree, is normal. In fact, that's normal in many countries in the world. It's even in the Old Testament culture of Israel, read Deuteronomy. It's even in the New Testament, Luke 6, Jesus shucking some grain when he's walking through a field. That's normal in many cultures. But it's not in ours. So J.D. had to wrestle with, with adding something to his conscience. That, that is, don't be stingy. And in this context, to take a mango is not theft. That's normal in that culture. See, he, but he has to remember, when he comes back to the United States, if he does that, you know, that's theft. It's complicated, isn't it? And he remembers the first time he was walking through a field with a friend, and the friend plucked some fruit and handed it to him. And he thought, oh, this doesn't feel right. But he had trained his conscience that, no, that, that's okay. That's not theft in that culture. Is this making sense? Are you tracking this? Okay. That's, that's just one of many examples of how when you cross cultures, 
this, this sort of thing can happen. How many of you have been internationally in other cultures, and you, know, you really know what I'm talking about? Okay, so you're with me. All right, so here's, here's where we're going to go next. What happens when you're trying to minister to someone in a different culture, and you're trying to appeal to them that they're sinners, and they need to trust Jesus, and when you give examples of sin... An example, like let's say you gave the example of stealing mangoes. What happens when you give that example to the person listening? Is it going to land onto them? Is, it, is that going to land on them in a way that their conscience would, would condemn them for sin? No. You're gonna, their conscience will be chirping. It, nothing, nothing to see here. Move along. Uh, so the strategy then is to know so well what registers in their conscience that really is sin according to the Bible and start there. What so often happens when when you cross cultures is you see the differences like the mango issue and you focus on those and it causes all sorts of of problems. Okay, so when you do this, this I'm drawing off of J.D. Crowley here because he's been the missionary, the lifelong career missionary. He knows what he's talking about. He says there are three dangers when a missionary is in another culture. Number one, there's a danger that will preach against sins that are not truly sins in any culture. They're just cultural accretions baggage that we've carried to our new country from the West, or worse yet, from our Christian subculture. You know, does not nature itself teach you that it's a sin to use certain instruments in worship, or it's a sin to destroy forests with slash and burn technology and agriculture, or it's a sin to put your 10-year-old child to work in the fields, or it's a sin to show up late for a church service, or whatever, and go on and on and on, where you have these ideas of the way it must be, and you try to take that with you to another culture. So that's, that's one danger here. And what happens often with, with people in other cultures is if you have the, a charismatic personality, you can convince people to adopt the way you think it should be done, but what happens is you're not, you're not letting the Holy Spirit convict them by the Word of God. What's happening is it could result in another group of Christians with overburdened consciences. And over, an overburdened conscience is a conscience ripe for error. When you focus so much on small things, turning them into big things in the hearts of these believers, you set them up to overlook huge things that will really harm them. After straining out dozens of gnats, you can choke on a camel. So that's, that's one danger. Another danger is the one we mentioned, and that's that we'll preach against what might truly be a sin to us, like stealing a mango, but it might not be a sin to them in that culture because we define the details of the command differently. That's, that was the case with the mangoes. Number three danger uh, is that we'll not be careful to value the virtues of the local people's conscience. Here's another example. Uh, honoring the elderly. In many cultures, the idea of putting a relative in a nursing home is scandalous. But many people in our culture don't bat an eye at that. So when you're in another culture, it's really important to recognize, oh, their cultural value here is actually a really good one and to respect it. So you want to come in with the idea that we're all sinners, so there's going to be sinful parts about culture, but we're all made in the image of God and there'll be some valuable parts as well that might differ from your own. So you want to come in evaluating pros and cons of that culture. You still with me? Okay. So now let's talk about what could happen if a missionary goes into a culture with an unexamined, uncalibrated conscience without ever thinking in the terms I've just been talking in. Remember that no two Christians have exactly the same consciences. Every, every person has a different set of what they think is right and wrong on any given issue and the zillions of issues there are in the world. And we want to always be uh, reforming our minds to the truth of the Word of God and being humbly willing to change if convinced by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So here's where I'm going to draw a man named Bob Priest, Robert Priest. He's a professor of uh, International Studies, Mission, and Anthropology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he grew up in Bolivia, and then he later conducted nearly two years of anthropological field research among the Agurana of Peru, and he focused on traditional religion and conversion to Christianity. This guy has written two articles that are amazing, so I'm going to be drawing on those. If you want the articles, you can 
come ask me afterwards, I'll give you a PDF of them. They're amazing. So he shares a, a cultural critical insight that in his, in his experience, when a, someone comes to another culture, like a missionary comes to another culture to serve them, to share the gospel, usually, he says, each person tends to condemn the other morally for behavior about which the other has no conscience. So here's, here's this example. It's going to shock you at first. I'll, I'll explain in a second. He says, a North American going to live with the Aguaruna may be highly incensed at the occasional beating of an errant wife, at arranged marriages, at polygyny, so multiple wives, or at the marriages of 13-year-old girls to 45-year-old men. For traditional Aguaruna, each of these is perfectly wholesome and appropriate. On the other hand, the Aguaruna are angered when North American anthropologists or missionaries fail to share the food they're eating with visitors. Food is, above all things, that with that which must be shared. And when such foreigners are invited for a meal, they fail to exercise careful self-restraint in eating meat, a limited and highly valued food item. Self-restraint in such a setting implies consideration for the needs of others and self-denial on their behalf. Okay, he's not suggesting that it's okay to beat your wife, that's not his point, or that it's okay to have multiple wives. What he's saying is that the missionary and the local can be oblivious to... Um, the behaviors that they think are moral and amoral when they're, when they're interacting with each other. So when it gets, gets closer to home here, take the issue of modesty in dress, for example, for women. Priest uh, says this, cultures vary in what is thought of as erotic and thus in what modesty entails. So you know the Bible says to be modest. What does that mean? Well, it depends on what culture you're in. Here's, here's what priest says. For many medieval Europeans, a woman's bare feet were thought highly erotic, while the bosom was associated primarily with nursing. Similarly, contemporary Fulani men say it is the sight of a woman's thighs that stimulates lustful desires. They find it hilarious that Western women go swimming in suits that carefully cover the bosom, a matter of relative indifference to modesty, while flagrantly covering their thighs to the world. For many Arab men, on the other hand, the sight mere sight of a woman's hair tends to stimulate lustful thoughts. Modest Arab women cover their hair in public. Behavior and dress that are appropriately modest in one cultural context may be deemed shockingly immodest in another context. Christian modesty in the U.S. will look quite different from Christian modesty in Iran. You see where I'm going with this? So if we're training, I'm not even talking about in your own church yet, just think about if we're training people to go internationally and we so focus on rigid rules that we say are, are Bible rules, and then we drop that person off in another culture where the women basically cover themselves head to foot, or say in another tribal area where the women wear grass skirts from the waist down and nothing else, we just say, you know, figure it out. What's going to happen to that person we're sending? This is complicated, and it starts here to think through principles. How do we apply them? How do we work with people when we disagree? It starts here before we start importing our values. Okay, so hang with me. We're going to get to the Bible in just a moment. Still setting up, setting up the problem here. Okay, so Bob Priest argues that if missionaries are not careful about cross-cultural conscience issues, they may actually bypass the native conscience and not convert they won't convert to Christianity. They'll convert to something else. They'll convert to a different culture. And it's essential that missionaries understand the role that culture has played in the formation of their own conscience and that they understand native conscience. Okay. That's the problem I wanted to set up just to start off. I know this is an unusual sermon. So now that we've seen the problem, let's look at the solution. How do we, how do we think through this? This is complicated, isn't it? How do we... How does the Bible bear, come to bear on this issue? Well, perhaps uh, Priest's recommendation here is, is helpful. He recommends two ways that missionaries should reach others in other cultures. Number one, seek to live an exemplary life in terms of the virtues and norms stressed by the people you're trying to reach. So if they have a noble cultural value, don't buck against that. Number two, stress, sin, guilt, and repentance 
principally with reference to native conscience, particularly that aspect of their conscience which agrees with Scripture. When you want to preach on sin, hit the areas that their conscience will say yes to. All right, so when you think about the Bible now, are there any examples in the Bible of a person who did the hard work of weeding and cultivating their conscience for the sake of winning people to Christ? Anyone come to mind? Okay, let's start with Paul. That's what I'm hearing. Paul, absolutely. So before Paul became a Christian, what was he? He's a Pharisee. Did Pharisees uh, uh, read the Bible? Yeah. Did they try to follow the Bible? Yeah. Did they maybe construct a fence around the Bible to help them not not follow the Bible? Yeah. Did you follow that? Uh, did, did they have lots of extra rules? <laughs> yes. Okay. So when Paul becomes a Christian, what kind of conscience did he have? Imagine if, you're, if your conscience is a garden. What happens to gardens if you don't cultivate them? They get overgrown with weeds and all kinds of stuff. So imagine his conscience was just this jumbled mess that had lots of weeds in it, but also had things that you want to keep. So what Paul had to do was ask himself three questions. What goes, what stays, and what's missing? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What goes? What should I remove from my conscience? What should I keep there? And what should I add? So let me give you some examples. I'm guessing Paul at some point had to just ask God, you know, God, it's time for you to help me weed this garden. It's time to bring my conscience under your lordship. I'm not the lord of my conscience. You are. So show me the laws that should be in my conscience but aren't. Show me the weeds I need to uproot. So let's take a few examples here. The prohibition about eating pork. What do you do with that? Because he, as a Pharisee, he didn't eat pork. What should he do with that? Should it, should it stay? This is, this is not a hard one. Uh, should, should that prohibition stay? Should he think that if I eat pork, it's sin? No, no, that should go. Jesus said in Mark 7 that that prohibition is not a matter of right and wrong. Um, it's just a preference now. Now, was that an easy decision for Paul to make? No, that was really hard. In fact, it was hard for someone else, one of uh, the 12 apostles in the book of Acts. Do you remember this story? There's, yeah, I heard it, Peter. So you know the story of Cornelius and God giving a vision to Peter, and uh, the vision has all these unclean animals in it, and, and what does God tell Peter to do? Kill and eat. Don't forget the kill part. So kill and eat. Right? And, and what does Peter say first? What, how's he reply? I can't do that. No, no. Remember, he's talking to God. God's saying, Peter, do this. And he said, I can't. I'm too holy. No, I'm God. You can do this. I'm telling you to do this. I can't. God did it three times. And after three times, Peter relented. And he went and ate meat. That was really hard for him. Because his whole life, it was in his conscience that eating meat is sin. So, so Paul had to do something similar. Eating meat is not sinful. Now, does that mean that once Paul recognized he had the freedom to eat meat, that he just lived it up and every day it was ha- uh, like ham stuffed with crab wrapped in bacon? Like, is that, is that how he, he ate everywhere he went? No, no, there's, there's more to it than just what can I do? Uh, but no longer should it be you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning if you eat that. Okay? Here's another example. Special Jewish holy days. What does he do with that? It's in his conscience. He's got to obey those. got to keep those. If I don't, it's sinful. Should he keep them in there? No. Out they go. They should go out. Now, it's a matter of conscience and wisdom and love and gospel. Which it's not a matter of conscience to keep them, but it might be a matter of wisdom and love to, to love other people by keeping them in some circumstances. So in other words, Paul can flex on these things now. He can do it or he might not do it. It depends. But no longer is it if I do or don't do it, it's sin. You see, it becomes a matter on which he can flex. Here's another example. Love for enemies. That wasn't in there. What, what, what should happen? Add that. Okay? Add th- that was missing. Add it. How about this one? Special kosher hand-washing rituals. Get out, right? That's not in the Bible. 
That's not, that's not, but, you know, if he's trying to reach some Pharisees and he goes to their house for dinner, you know, go ahead. It's fine. You don't want to, you want to offend with the gospel, not hand washing. So it's something you can flex on. You're tracking with me here? You're all with me? Okay. So basically the key here is once you recognize that something is not inherently sinful, you're able to flex on it for the sake of the gospel. If you think that something's inherently sinful, you can't flex on it. That's called sin. Even if it's not sin. If you think it's a sin to drink root beer, and you drink root beer, that's sin. Now, it's not a sin to drink root beer, but if you think it is, that's what makes it sin. That's Romans 14. So, the point I'm trying to make is, if you calibrate your conscience well, where you can recognize, biblically, this is or is not sin, once you recognize it's not inherently sinful, you can flex on it, given the circumstance, for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're going to look at with Paul here. So now, finally, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to show you how Paul reasoned to justify the way he was doing this. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is how Paul became someone who could glide from culture to culture with seamless transitions without attracting attention to himself because it wasn't about him. It was about Christ. It's about the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, and look at verse 19 and following. So this is Paul. Remember, he was a scrupulous Pharisee. And now he, he looks back and says this, For though I am free from all, so free from all people and all cultures, though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all, What's the purpose? That I might win more of them. Note that purpose. He's going to repeat it several times. That I might win more of them. And now he gives four examples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. What's the purpose? In order to win Jews. Second example. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, but What's the purpose? That I might win those under the law. Third example. To those outside the law. I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What's the purpose? That I might win those outside the law. Are you seeing a pattern here? Okay, fourth example. To the weak. I became weak. What's the purpose? That I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. What's the purpose? That by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Purpose that I may share with them in its blessings. Are you seeing a pattern in that passage? He's able to flex when he's with certain people for the sake of the gospel. He says something similar a few paragraphs down in chapter 10, verses 23 and following. So he starts by quoting them. People say, all things are lawful. And he replies, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, he says. He's quoting them. And he replies, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So now he gives a couple examples. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. He's basically saying, you, you might have a conscience quibble with this. Don't have a quibble with this. Eat it. And he gives a reason. He quotes the Bible, quotes the Old Testament. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he gives another example. He says, uh, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, so two examples of saying, just eat it for the sake of the gospel. And then he adds a disclaimer. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. And you might be thinking, what? Well, let's keep, keep going. He says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And here's the answer. So whether you eat or drink Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And keep reading. Don't stop there. What does it look like to eat and drink and do all to the glory of God? It says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks 
or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, what's the purpose? That they may be saved. Be imitators of me, he says, as I am of Christ. He's appealing to you to follow that example. So we too must seriously and prayerfully do the difficult work of streamlining our conscience under the direction of the Holy Spirit and his word. And this might mean creating files in your mind. J.D. Crowley talked about it this way. He's got a, a hygiene file for when he's in America and when he's in the Khmer people of Cambodia and when he's in, with tribal minorities in Cambodia. Three different files. He's got to remember which one he's to follow when, with whoever he's with. It's complicated. But he does it for the sake of the gospel. He wants to offend people only with the gospel, not with his hygiene. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, I think, present two kinds of people. They're people like Paul who can flex for the sake of the gospel. And they're people that people like Paul flexes for. In other words, they're people who can flex and people who can't flex. Which kind do you think you should be? You need to be able to flex. That's, that way you can flex for the sake of the gospel. If you, if you take 50 trivial things, I shouldn't say trivial, let's say small matters, and you take such a strong stand that you must do it this way or nothing else, and they're, they're actually matters of conscience, and you say, I can never flex on that, that's 50 less things you can flex on for the sake of the gospel. Is this starting to click now why this matters for spreading the gospel? Uh, so this is about Christian liberty. I know Christian liberty is also God gives us the freedom to do and enjoy many things in Christ. Yes, yes, yes. I don't want to take away that for a moment. But that's not how Paul's talking about it here. For him in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, what is, what is this Christian freedom he talks about? It's this freedom in verse 19 really to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So this isn't the way Paul's talking about it here. It's not like, cool, now I can get to do all the stuff that my strict upbringing didn't allow me to do. And then I'll Facebook about it to show everyone else. Um, That's not Christian liberty. That's immaturity. That's immaturity. um, Christian liberty is the domain of the mature, not the immature. When the immature get a hold of it, they make a mess of it, like the Corinthian church did. Christian liberty is not about you and your freedom to do whatever you want to do. It's about the freedom to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. So let's give some missionary examples. And I'm drawing here from my friend J.D. Crowley. He says, Christian liberty is the freedom to eat dog when natives in the village serve it to you. I've never done that. It's easier to preach. Uh, Christian liberty is the freedom to choose not to eat southern barbecue and double bacon cheeseburgers because you're called to serve Christ in a Muslim area. Christian liberty is the freedom that comes to a single lady missionary who was brought up to have personal scruples against wearing pants but disciplines herself to wear the indigenous clothing of a tribe in Central Asia including pants, because in that culture, only loose women wear dresses and show their ankles in public. Christian liberty is the freedom that comes from Christ that allows a very private person to open up their home in a society where people just walk in without knocking, a society that doesn't even have a word for privacy. I'm describing J.D. Crowley's wife in Cambodia. Christian liberty is about a clean freak who forces himself not to get out his hand sanitizer every time he shakes someone's hand or touches something in a third world country. You laugh, but my friend J.D. knows a man, a couple, that basically had to come off the field for that reason. (laughs) Really sad. Christian liberty is the freedom to sing and dance to the tribal hymns the way they sing and dance to them, even though by upbringing and personality, you've never been comfortable showing that kind of emotion in worship. And J.D. says he's describing himself. Christian liberty is about someone who hates bugs, having the freedom to discipline himself to live 
where bug invasions are a nightly ordeal during some seasons. And as we just saw in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, 28, 29, it's about a Christian who's, who is used to having scruples about eating meat, then getting invited to his unsaved neighbor's house for a feast and being served meat that he doesn't want to eat, but he goes ahead and eats it for the sake of the gospel, following Paul's command in 1027. It's also about another Corinthian Christian at the same party who has no scruples about eating meat. And just as he gets ready to dig in to that steak, the guy next to him says, don't eat that, it's been offered to idols. And he, honoring that man, puts down his fork and says, thank you for telling me that, and he doesn't eat. That's what Christian liberty is about. It's, it's being free to discipline yourself for the sake of the gospel. It's putting others before yourself for the sake of the gospel. So here's how my friend J.D., a lifelong missionary, puts it. He says, when he exhorts missionaries, he says basically this, you can't live this kind of life if your conscience is cluttered with all manner of restrictions that don't need to be there. If what you eat and what you drink is in the category of black and white, right, black and white, right and wrong, can you flex on it? Never. If pristine hygiene has made its way into your conscience as a matter of right and wrong, can you flex on that? If, if your conscience tells you it's wrong to eat animals, ever, then there goes your ministry to 90% of the world. That's uh, probably an overstatement, but you get the idea. Uh, if you think privacy is next to godliness, you won't last long in most countries. If your conscience won't let you dance to tribal hymns, J.D. Crowley says, stay away from Africa. Or, or he said you could import all Western hymns there and sing them just the way you do, and don't forget to bring the piano. So this is, there's a professor at Bob Jones here named Mark Vowles who he says what you end up with, you call this franchise missions, like Starbucks. And they're little cookie-cutter duplicates of your home church in a foreign country. Same dress, same songs, same buildings, and the same bound consciences. Bound by things that those poor folks had no idea or even sins until the missionaries came and let them know. Adding to their burden instead of lifting it. So, where do you get these kinds of missionaries who can actually cross a culture and serve in a way like Paul? Where do they come from? You grow them in the church right here. This church is a laboratory for missionaries. And the kind of conscience issues over disputable matters that might come up in a church this size are just a testing ground. It's like double A, preparing for the majors as a sports analogy. Let's do another one. It's like, um, it's like junior high as opposed to college. It's, it's just the training wheels of, of, of something bigger and more complex. And if your own church is rife with strife and disunity over these sorts of issues, don't import that to some other country. You're not ready. So that's, that's the connection we're, we're making here between foreign missions and matters of conscience in your local church. And you might say, okay, I, th- I think I see that. Is that. Where is that in the Bible again? Okay, so th- there are two passages, two main passages. We looked at one in 1 Corinthians 9. So remember 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, that's about a missionary strategy Paul had. And both before it and after it, the whole context is uh, sacrificing your rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of spreading the gospel. And remember the broader context, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, is about a squabble in the church. So there is a connection there. There is a connection between how your church deals with these sorts of conscience issues and then how you translate that into reaching the nations with the gospel. And there's one other passage that I'd like you to turn to next, and this is in Romans 15. Romans 15 is the most important mission passage, missions passage, I think, in the Bible. And it's in Romans, which is, I think, the most important theological document in the Bible. Guess, in this passage, who is the prototypical missionary, the missionary par excellence? Who is it in Romans 15? It's not Paul. It's Jesus. So let me show you. Look at 15 verse 7 and following. Therefore, welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And notice the next word. What, what is the next word? For. That's a logical word, a connecting word. It's because. It's giving a reason that you should welcome people in the way Romans 14 in the beginning of 15 says. Here's why. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see the connection with verse 7? So welcome one another. Here's why. Because that's what Jesus did. He did it when he left heaven to become a Jew. He wasn't always a Jew. He became a Jew. It says he became a servant to the circumcised. Why that word? Why doesn't it say the Jews? I think it's reminding us that he didn't just become a servant to an ethnicity, to a race or a language, but to an entire culture with all its intact worldview and expectations and rules and traditions, and circumcision was perhaps the most prominent, famous. And it wasn't just any culture. Jesus submitted himself to a culture that was, in the history of the world, perhaps the most strict. It's famous for being unusually strict. And just think about this. The Son of God, who is not a Jew, became a Jew, left his complete freedom in heaven, he became a good little Jewish boy, really, and he became a a good Jewish man, perfectly obeyed the very laws that he himself gave at Mount Sinai, laws that he knew were temporary in the history of salvation, and followed those. Uh, The only laws he pushed back on were those that the Pharisees had added or completely ignored. So Jesus in his life practiced what he later preached through Paul in Romans 14. He became a servant to a people who were very different from him. He submitted himself to a culture that was foreign. He welcomed this Jewish culture. He fit into Jewish culture. He wasn't a counterculture hippie who railed against everything traditional. Right? He went to synagogue, went to the temple, He memorized the Old Testament. He celebrated Passover. He rested on the Sabbath. He he followed that culture. Now, what happens when people do things like that? What did the Son of God purpose to accomplish when for the glory of God, he voluntarily became what he was not? Look again at verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, number one, to show God's truthfulness. So Christ showed the world that God is truthful. Christ's purpose was Godward. It's vindicating God's truthfulness. If Christ didn't become a servant to a culture not his own, this wouldn't have happened like this. So number one, to show God's truthfulness. Number two, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, So Christ fulfilled all the promises that God made to the patriarchs, hundreds of them. Those promises, fulfilling them, they depended on Christ becoming a servant in this way. And then number three, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ brought the Gentiles into God's family. I'm guessing most of you are ethnically Gentiles. So this is pretty important for you, isn't it? And the following verses, 9b through 12, those are four Old Testament promises about the Gentiles. So one's through Moses, two through David, and one through the prophet Isaiah. Those wouldn't have come to pass if Christ didn't become a servant like he does in this passage. So you are living examples results of Christ being willing to serve in a culture not his own. And just like Paul tells you to do that in Romans 14, uh, Jesus preached through Paul what he practiced. Uh, Think through, what does that mean for you now? So Jesus did this. Peter did this. Paul did this. And Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So I'm, I'm I'm appealing to you from the text here. Imitate Paul as Paul imitated Christ 
in this matter. So what happened when Peter obeyed Christ and became a servant to a culture most certainly not his own in Acts 10? You happened, if you're a Gentile Christian. What happened when Paul obeyed Christ and became all things to all men? More fruitfulness. More people came to Christ. What's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to the people inside your own church who aren't like you, who make you uncomfortable, people you want to judge in your heart because either they're too strict or they're too loose? What's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to people outside your church who aren't like you and who make you uncomfortable? It's the same kind of fruitfulness that came about when Jesus and Peter and Paul laid down their lives in the same way. Fruitfulness. And that kind of fruitfulness glorifies God. So let's wrap this up here. A a church is a cross-cultural laboratory for effective mission. And if a church is unhealthy in its own culture, then the last thing another country needs is for you to export that and then import it into their country. You don't need to reproduce that kind of model. So Paul calibrated his conscience to love people for the sake of the gospel. He calibrated his conscience so he could spread unselfishly. And can you just imagine what would happen if your church were to do the same thing? If, If your church were filled with members who calibrated their conscience like Paul did for the sake of the gospel? Guilty consciences wouldn't paralyze church members. Church members wouldn't arrogantly and stubbornly refuse to educate their conscience. They'd be open to calibrating their conscience if their convictions were misinformed and to do that with truth and with due process. Church members wouldn't squabble over disputable matters. You wouldn't have to worry about church splits over this because you'd be focused on something bigger. You'd be focused on a mission. That's way bigger than those little issues. So would you pray this with me? And then uh, I'll turn it over to Matt. Father, we thank you for giving us a conscience. For those of us who have experienced your electing love, we thank you for what you've done to our consciences. You've cleared them, perfected them, cleansed them, purified them, washed them, purged them, sprinkled them clean. So now, would you grace us to maintain consciences that are good, blameless, clear, clean, pure? Would you please give us grace and wisdom to calibrate our convictions about specific matters of conscience to be more scripturally informed? And would you please give us grace and wisdom to love other Christians when we disagree about matters of conscience? And then, as we spread the fame of your name internationally, globally, would you help us wisely evangelize and edify others in different cultures. Help us be free to flex on issues that we should be flexing on. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Andy, thank you very much for for educating us on how to flex our consciences. Um, he, I just want to reiterate some of the things he said at the end there. He said, calibrate our conscience with Scripture for the sake of the gospel. Not only is that something we need to do externally, but that's in, internal in the church. And he says, don't squabble over disputable matters as a training ground um, for how we go forward with the gospel. Loving other Christians who aren't like us is a training ground for loving other people who are not believers. And then it helps us evangelize other cultures. Unless we think that this is all just a message about how do we prepare to go and do short-term missions or how do we prepare to go and be a missionary or how do we prepare to go somewhere else, really this message is way more applicable than that, although it does apply to all those things. But it also really applies to our daily lives. Anybody here work around unbelievers, people who are not in this culture, this church culture? Anybody go to school with people who are not in this culture? And you go, anybody have a neighbor who's, who, are, who are not believers? Or maybe they're believers who are very different from you. Anybody in those settings have unbelieving neighbors? Anybody ever encounter people, maybe at you know, the coffee shop, wherever you go, if that's methodical downtown or Starbucks, or if you think it's Star Yucks, or you think methodical is terrible, whatever you're kind of, you can flex on those things too, by the way. That's okay. 
Um, I can flex and go to do south, and um, even though it's not good coffee, I can flex, and we can all flex that way. So there's, see, isn't that good? I'm training you for how to flex on disputable matters, and we kid, but those things actually can become important to us, and those things can become, we can kind of hold our preferences really tightly, you know, um, over food or drink or all manner of things. And let's not, not only do that in the church and flex there where the Bible's not clear about what kind of coffee you drink or don't drink. And my wife doesn't even drink coffee, and I live with her still. And, and, and I, we both flex. Um, but more seriously, we encounter people each and every day who need the hope of the gospel. And what they don't need is us bringing our unbiblical sometimes rules and maybe some things that are areas of conscience for us that might be sent to us that that may not be for them that could be barriers to us going forward with the mission if you remember our mission as a church is to be disciples of jesus so follow jesus that's our mission not follow the culture to be disciples of jesus who are growing as disciples so conforming our consciences and then we're making disciples and if we really want to apply this message i would say boy let's not only apply in the church But think, how do I reach out to my neighbor who's totally unlike me and maybe enjoys watching football every Sunday when, you know, personally, I I couldn't stand doing that. Um, But how how do we flex on areas for the sake of the gospel? Let's not just kind of check this off as a missionary message, but we all are called to be missionaries in our context. Amen? Right? Excellent. So let's apply this to our own hearts our own lives in the church, but to everybody we encounter, knowing that for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel, let me try to figure out how can I reach them? How can I flex in ways um, that glorify God and that actually defer? So uh, I loved what Andy said about um, true Christian liberty is for those who are mature. Um, I'm mature enough to give up stuff that I think I'm free to do. And um, that's, that's a wonderful way that we can apply the message. So thank you, Andy, for sharing that. Um, for everybody else who's visiting here with us, I want to apologize to you for a moment, but not really. Um, I'm going to take about five minutes to update you on a couple things. 